0: So, tonight we're going to be in the book of Ephesians, or Ephesians, if you want to call it that. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2 1 through 10. Our last study on the cross of Christ. So far, we've seen Christ as our substitute, the fact that He came and took our place, He died for us, and then. We've looked at some of the, the, the aspects of, of Christ's death and how his atonement applied sinward, how it applied Godward, and now tonight we're going to see how his atonement applies manward and how God, through Christ, reconciled the world to himself. Jesus says, as I'm lifting up, all men will be drawn to myself. We're going to talk about God's grace. And so the title of the study is Christ, the Savior of the World. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this evening, Lord. Thank you for Lord just the chance to worship you and to Lord and to, and to be with you. You're so amazing, Lord, in your love for us and um, Lord. It, it requires a response, Lord. It requires a response of our life, Lord. And and one aspect of that, Lord, is just by sitting at your feet, Lord. We're reminded of um, you know that story of Mary and Martha and how Lord you commended Mary for for that good thing. And while it's good to work and you know while it 's good to to serve Lord yet there 's that required response of, of worship of sitting with you, Lord, of, of learning about you of, of hearing from you and just just being with you, just soaking up how, how good you are as lovers do and so Lord, make us more in love with you, Lord, teach us more about your goodness, woo us Lord, by your grace, Lord, that as, as we leave this place, we just be floored and shocked about. Or just how good you are, just how amazing our salvation is that, Lord, you would choose to to take our place, Lord, and you would choose to to, um, apply this work to our life. And so, minister to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's something to think about. If you had to, off the top of your head, name the most known Christian song or hymn in history, what would that hymn be? Amazing Grace. Someone said it. Yeah, you're right. I would say, me, uh, I'm teaching so I'm right, Amazing Grace. <laughs> and, and, and I think most of you would agree. Amazing Grace, as most of you know, was written by a man named John Newton. Now, what's amazing about Amazing Grace is the story of redemption behind the song. Here's a brief background to the song that I found online. It says, John Newton was a slave trader, a blasphemer, a a rebel an immoral man, a torturer, and as far from grace as anyone could ever be. As a boy, John was captivated by the adventure and risk of life on the high seas. But when he was 11, young John Newton launched into that exciting life of voyaging, sailing, and living his dream. But the dream turned out to be a nightmare. Later in his life, he wrote, I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. Newton lived a hard life with hard consequences. God got his attention, though. In 1748, Newton's slave ship was nearly wrecked by an intense storm. In the tempest, surrounded by crashing waves, cutting winds, creaking timbers, and the cries of onboard slaves, John fell to his knees and pled for mercy and for, for grace. God's grace, which reaches anyone, anywhere, saved a wretch like John Newton. Newton wrote the song years later while serving as a pastor in Oldney, England. During America's Second Great Awakening, the song was paired with its familiar tune and was widely used in camp meetings and revival services. Now, thinking of this song of redemption, which is known by all. I mean, you know, if you watch a a funeral, you know, they're playing it on bagpipes. And I mean, pretty much everybody knows Amazing Grace. The song which is known by all reminds me of another song that is also can be known by all, all who are around us. And Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, which is where we get our English word poem. This word can mean a work of art, such as a poem, a song, a painting, or a sculpture. So like this song Amazing Grace, because of our faith in Jesus Christ in the daily transforming work of the Holy Spirit, as we live our good works out, it testifies to the world around us like a song of God's grace. All people can hear it. All people can, you know, can, can understand it In the fact that, wow, God's grace is amazing. He changes lives. Now, Paul also along these same lines in 2 Corinthians 3.2 says that believers are living epistles of Christ, known and read by all men. I believe God is writing a beautiful poem of redemption, on your heart as you walk with him daily. Either uh, you know either way whether it's a poem or a song, we know because God is the author and composer, it's going to be something glorious and beautiful when he's finished. God is creating a testimony with our lives daily as we walk with him, and the testimony is timeless. It's going to last forever. We're going to be talking about the Lord's grace throughout all of our days in heaven. And it also could be known and read by all. People can see a changed life. Now, just like the song Amazing Grace is awesome, but even more so, it's awesome because the story of redemption behind the song, in the same way it's true of our lives. You see, as, as we walk with God, as we live out the good works that he has for us, that's great, that's amazing. But really, the story behind the song of our lives is really what's amazing. Behind the fact that we have a changed life, you know, that's really what, you know, is Amazing. And Paul tells us what that is in Ephesians 2, 1-9. He gives us the story behind this song, behind this work of art, and it's a story of redemption, just like the story of John Newton. The story begins with us being a wretch, and it centers on the cross of Jesus Christ, where God reconciled the world to himself, and in which he drew all men to himself. And so that's going to be our focus tonight. We're going to see the, the story behind the song of our life and, and what God is doing in writing this song daily as we walk with him. John Newton began the song by talking about how he was lost, you know, blind and a wretch. Well, to be more accurate, the Apostle Paul in verses 1 through 3 tells us that we are dead in darkness and depraved. Let's look at each one of these real fast as, as we begin this story. He says in verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And so God in the Garden of Eden, as we all know we've talked about this a couple times so far in the series, God in the Garden of Eden said, Adam, if you eat of the fruit, you're going to surely die. And what did Adam do? He disobeyed God's command and he died. Now he didn't fall over dead. He began dying physically, but he died at that moment spiritually. Death, as we said, is separation from God. So man became spiritually separated from God, When a person is born into this world because they are born of the line of Adam, they're born with a sin nature, therefore they're born separated from God. Nobody's born in a relationship with God, even if you're an Italian Catholic, as, you know, as, as we hear uh, often. Nobody is born in a relationship with God. Everybody is born separated from God. Now, the fact that all people have a sin nature, the fact that all people are born dead, is evident from the fact that we're born dead in trespasses and sins. A trespass describes willful disobedience to God's law. Sin means missing the mark of God's perfection, of God's perfect and holy nature. We saw last week that all mankind fail when they enter the courtroom of God and they stand before a holy judge. As we look at God's revelation through his word, we see if you break one law, you're guilty of them all. And as we look at ourselves compared to God's standard of holiness, which is his own nature, we see that we fall short. We're all sinners. We're all sinners transgressors, transgressors, we're all, uh, you know, we, we've all trespassed. And because of that, it's evident that we have a sin nature. We, we sin because uh, we're a sinner. We're born with a sin nature. Now, Paul goes on and says, you were also in darkness in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. I like this. Paul reminds these believers of their BC days, other days before Christ. He says, hey guys, you once walked in the course of this world, of course, you know, in the course of the prince of the power of the air. He says, whether they knew it or not, they were held captive by Satan. They were slaves of the kingdom of darkness. John tells us something similar to this in his epistle. He says, guys, the whole world lies under sway of the wicked one. The whole world lies under sway of the wicked one. So while unbelievers feel that they're free, that they're free thinkers, that they're living their life for themselves, I, I hear this at work a lot. Guys say, oh, I, you know, I live for myself. I kind of do what I want to do. While they might feel that way, just like John Newton, they're sailing the course of this world. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're following the stars of this world. They're, they're following the course and the pattern of this world. They're held captive in the marketplace of sin. They're the ones who are the slaves on the ship, they're held captive, and they're headed for their final destination, which is a Christless eternity in the lake of fire. Also, you were depraved, look at verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Man left to himself fulfills his own sinful desires in nature." We see this in our children. Nobody has to teach a child how to sin; they're born with a sin nature. They naturally are disobedient, you know, because mankind has a natural bent towards evil. Theologians call this depravity or the total depravity of man. What does this even mean, depravity? Well, I want to give first of all what it it, um, it it means and what it does not mean. First, what it means by depravity, we mean that all people are sinners. "...totally destitute of the love of God, which is fundamental to the law, that man is supremely given to the preference of himself, that he has an inversion, aversion um, to God, on which occasion becomes active enmity to him, that his every faculty is disordered and corrupted, that he has no thought, feeling, or deed of which God can fully approve, that he has entered upon a line consistent, uh, of a consistent progress and depravity, from which he can in no wise turn away in his own strength. And finally, man is totally unable, apart from grace and the work of the Spirit, to be saved. It's a pretty bad situation. (laughs) That's depravity. That's who we are. Now, what does depravity not mean? Well, depravity does not mean that man is as sinful as he could be. Nor does it mean that he is bitterly opposed to God as he could be. Nor does total depravity mean that man is devoid of all qualities, such as pleasing to man and, and prone to commit, you know, to commit every evil. For example, man can still choose not to sin against the Holy Spirit. He can still decide not to commit, or to, uh, to decide to commit a lesser sin rather than a greater sin. He can resist temptations and do outwardly good acts. Also, man still has freedom of choice, but this choice and their will is is enslaved to their fallen nature. And so this is, this is man's nature. This is, this is what we're born with as a result of the fall. Now, God didn't make man this way. When God made Adam and Eve, he made them innocent. He made them holy. They were absolutely free to render their love to God and to each other. They had no flesh to hinder them in their love for each other. They had no flesh to hinder them in their love for God. They can choose to either, out of their own will, to, to obey or disobey God's command. But when they sinned, something changed. The flesh was, in, in, the flesh entered into man. They, they then became enslaved to sin. And, and, and we see that very clearly with Cain and Abel there right after them. It's like, wow, what happened? You know, they're Adam and Eve in the garden then all of a sudden we have Cain and Abel in, in chapter four. Abel's murder, And then we have the antediluvian folks there you know, before the flood in chapter six. And they're committing wickedness and sin and you know, we had the whole line of Cain and so clearly something changed within man. Adam began bearing children in his own image. Now yes, he still had the image of God, he still had these immaterial characteristics, these, you know, spiritual characteristics, you know, that he got from God, but yet because of his flesh, they were all corrupted. Because of his sin nature, all these other things were corrupted, his conscience, his will, and and, and all these other things. Man has a natural bent towards evil. Now, this was the state that we all found ourselves in when we were saved by God's grace. This is how God found us when we received the Lord's mercy. And Paul tells us that in verses 5 through 9, or excuse me, verses 4 through 9. Now, each one of these characteristics of God's grace, and we're going to see two of them here, focuses on man's condition and how God responded to our condition. First, we see that we were separated from God. Therefore, God loved us first. And that's what Paul says here in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace he have been saved and raised up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so there we were, dead in trespasses and sins. We are separated from God, but God, I love that, but God, who is rich in mercy and love, he acted first. Grace has been defined as love and action, and that's exactly what we see throughout the Bible over and over and over with God. When Adam and Eve were there in the garden naked, was it? It was God that was searching after them in order to cover them, in order to, in order to restore them. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so God, in his grace, sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He sent him to bridge that gap. He bridged the gap between a holy God and a sinful man. And that's what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. He says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And so Jesus bridged that gap. There's that separation between God and man. We're born dead, trespass and sins. But God sent Jesus to bridge that gap. He, he was there to restore this relationship. And he did it by... Sacrificing himself to pay the ransom for our sins. Also, our story gets even better because Paul says that you and I weren't knocking on God's door daily, you know, like in the movie Frozen. You want to go build a snowman? Kind of thing, you know. We weren't, you know, we weren't daily knocking on God's door when he found us, but rather we were enemies of God. Paul in Ephesians 5 or excuse me, Ephesians, uh, Romans 5, 6-11 says this. He says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man will someone even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so we were not only separated from God as innocent people, but we were separated from God as his enemies. We were enemies of God because of our sin. We were by nature, as Paul says, children of wrath. We deserved just wrath for our sins. But God, because of his love for us, but God, because of his mercy, but God, because of his love, sent Jesus to die on the behalf of his enemies. That's amazing. Through the death of Jesus Christ and the shed blood on the cross, Paul tells us here that he reconciled the world to himself. Reconcile means to remove the enmity that was between man and God. And he was able to do that through Christ's death. Because his enmity has now been removed positionally, all mankind are rendered savable before a holy God. God didn't change, but man's position before a holy God changed on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. It's amazing. We, were, we, we had our back Turned on God and God positionally the entire world rendered man savable. Now not all men are saved through this act, but all men have the possibility of being saved. And the way that we're saved is by receiving the message of reconciliation. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul talked about that in Second Corinthians five. So Christ, so God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and now we have the message of reconciliation to go out to man and say, hey, be reconciled to God. God wants to save you. God is reaching out to you. He's reconciled all men. He's made it, made it possible for men to be saved. Now just receive this message of peace and, and be um, born again. Salvation is to all. But in verses 8 and 9, we see there's another aspect to God's grace. We see that God meets us in our darkness. God meets us in our depravity. Not only did he bridge the gap and he reconciled us to himself, but God is able to overcome the fact that we were in bondage, in darkness, in the fact that we were depraved in our nature. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The basis of our salvation, from start to finish, is grace. Grace is God's unmerited and undeserved gift. Now, some have taught from this verse that the gift is referring to faith, but scholars say it's better to understand this based upon the Greek language to see this grace as the total package, package of our salvation. So it's better to understand the gift here is talking about grace, the total package, package of our salvation rather than, than faith that God gives to just some. As some have taught, you can't really support that. Um, from, from this passage. Now, the total package of salvation that we have is the aspect of our salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Kind of big words, but really they're very simple definitions. Justification is past tense. We were saved from the penalty of our sin as we put our faith in Jesus. When we put our faith in the Lord, we were born again, and then God declared us righteous, righteous in His sight. By our faith in Him alone. Now, our justification is not based upon our own works. Paul's very clear here. It's not based upon anything about us, but it's based upon God, His grace, and the work of His Holy Spirit. It's all based upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus in John 16 said that He needed to die, rise again, and, and to ascend into heaven so that He could send the Holy Spirit into the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so salvation is a work of God's Holy Spirit sent into this world, and God has done that. He sent his Spirit into the world to strive with men, to convict men of their sin, to reveal man, to reveal to man who's lost that he needs to be saved. But also salvation is a work of God's grace concerning our response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from our own power within us or our own good within us. Man is totally depraved. Our ability to believe the gospel comes from Jesus' grace in his alone, which comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus himself said in John 12, verse 32. He says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Jesus says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will give sufficient grace to all mankind to believe in me. I will draw all men to myself. Now, this is not to be confused with what Those who call themselves Calvinists believe, um, you know, which is called irresistible grace, which they believe that God, before time, selected this group to go to heaven this group, you know, to go to hell. And the group that he chose, he's going to give them this irresistible grace. You know, whether they like it or not, they're going to be drawn to him and they're going to be saved. And then once they're saved, then they're going to realize that they're actually saved by by putting their faith in him. The Bible doesn't teach that. Rather than teaching irresistible grace, the Bible teaches resistible grace, And we see that over and over and over through the Bible. Through the cross of Christ, Jesus draws all men to himself through his grace, making it possible for all men to use their free will and to be saved. We have the ability to either respond to this grace or to reject it. Now, second, concerning our sanctification, which is God's process of making us more like Jesus daily as we walk with him, we also see that it's a work of God's grace through the cross of Christ. Paul says in, in, um, in Romans 5, 1-2, through 2, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The believer stands in God's grace. That's our position right now as we stand in God's grace. Yes, we're to abide in Christ. A saving faith will produce fruit. It will produce good works. But the fact that you and I are children of God, sons and daughters of God, isn't affected by our own righteousness, by our own, by our own works. We stand in the Lord's grace. And so based upon the cross of Christ, we're secure in our faith. We, we have that hope. We have that peace. We, we have that rest. Our future aspect of our salvation is based upon God's grace. It's called glorification. Glorification is that, the fact that we're one day we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. Paul mentioned that at the end of Romans 5.2. He says we can rejoice in the glory of God. We can rejoice in it. We don't have to go around worrying you know, that we're going to lose our salvation all the time. Paul says, hey man, you can rejoice in it. Knowing that you're going to stand before God, you know, away from the presence of sin. Fully glorified. Paul said, God who began a good work in you will complete it. He, he's going to complete it. Because it's not based upon us. It's based upon his grace and what Jesus accomplished to the cross. And so our salvation from start to, to end is all about grace. The first stirring of our hearts to believe in Christ came from God's Holy Spirit to woo us. It came from Jesus' grace to enable us, to draw us to Himself in order to believe. When we received Christ, we became born again. We we became justified. Now we stand in this grace in which we can rejoice in God's changing us daily by his spirit. And finally, one day when we stand in front of Him in heaven we're going to realize it was all by grace. That's going to be our story. That's going to be our song throughout all eternity. And that's what Paul says here in the book of Ephesians. It's going to be something that we talk about throughout ages to come. God's grace in our life. How should we respond to this amazing story? How should we, you know, how should we respond to this story of redemption? Well, we see it in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We need to allow God to write His beautiful song with our lives. God's done the work, He saved us. Now we just need to let Him write the song with our lives. God wants to do something amazing with our life. He doesn't want to force us to walk with Him. God, we already taught Forced love is not love at all. God will not force us. you know, to to be used by him. God won't force us to have something amazing done in our life. God wants to do it, but we must render ourselves willing and open to the Lord. If we'll give ourselves over to the Lord and and walk with him daily and follow his will, then God is going to make a beautiful song with our life. It's going to testify to all. Also, God's going to give us the abilities to sing this song. We're going to be the, the greatest boy or girl band around. And as we As we walk with the Lord, singing God's amazing grace. Also, God is amazing because of the fact that He sets up concerts for us. He goes before us and He prepares good works for us that we would walk in them. So, God has written the song. It's it's a beautiful song. He's given us the ability to sing this song as we walk with Him and testify to the world. And then He's even going to give us appointments for us to be able to sing this song for others. All we have to do is just be willing and to respond to the work of his Holy Spirit. Amen.